After continuing our teaching through the book of Acts, we come to truly the middle point of the book. If you look at the original Greek scriptures, the amount of words that come before Acts chapter 15 and those that come after are nearly equal. And so we are here now in the middle point of the book, and it's interesting, and I think this was Luke's design and that of the inspiration of the Spirit, that this subject matter that we're going to consider together today comes right in the middle. So before I introduce much about this chapter, I want to just read it for a slight bit of context you know by this point that the gospel has extended beyond the environs of Jerusalem, in fact, beyond the environs of Israel proper. Paul has, in context, just returned from his first missionary journey, which would have primarily been to Gentile people. And Gentile people are responding to the gospel. So, Paul and Barnabas, now back in Syrian Antioch, sort of their home church, have people that come to them and contend that if you're going to be a Christian, you know, you not only have to trust Jesus as Savior, you need to add some things to it, including things like circumcision and other components of Moses' law. Paul and Barnabas will stand strongly against them as will the church in Jerusalem. So that's what we're going to read about now. And just for the sake of tying it to our current context, there have been, there are, and there always will be constant threats to the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There were in the first years after Jesus' ascension, there have been since then, there are now, and there always will be. So in keeping with that, let's read together Acts chapter 15. This is God's Word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, 
Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how, God's, how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas ran in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Let's pray briefly. Holy Spirit, comforter sent to us from our Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus, we ask now that through the word of God, You would make these words plain to us, that we would understand them, that we would embrace them, that we would see their relevance for our time and for our lives. I pray that in your great mercy that you will do that in each of our hearts, which we need, that you would take the living and breathing Word of God and transform us, that you would give us Furthermore, conviction and hope in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, we are under constant threat of this gospel being eclipsed. And we pray that you would guard us from that in our own lives and from those around us.
May we not only embrace it, but may we proclaim it and make it known for the good of our community, the good of the nations, and the glory of the Lord Jesus, who is worthy to receive the reward for his sufferings. Do all this, we pray, in faith, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Acts chapter 15 clarifies for us that there is an inextricable link between truth and life. That is to say, doctrine is not our salvation. Jesus is the one who saves us. However, proper understanding, proper faith in the Lord Jesus is necessary according to the Scriptures for salvation. This is not something that is new in first century Palestine. This had been true since the Garden. If you are around here often, you know that we often return to the roots of our family story. That goes all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve, under the temptation of Satan, turned away from God to establish their own deification. As God had promised, they immediately died. Now, not organically, their synapses kept firing, their hearts kept beating, their lungs kept exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide, but but spiritually they were dead. They were separated from God. And what was the first thing that they did? They hid themselves and they blame shifted. The first actions of our fallen parents were to establish their own righteousness, to cover themselves up. Unless they be lost in this deceitful scheme, God comes to them immediately and does pronounce curses upon them and their offspring. But in the midst of this, makes an astounding promise that salvation will come from outside of them. It will not require their perfect obedience. It will not require some extravagant self-sacrifice. But it was a promise of the sacrifice of another. A seed of the woman who would come. And prophetically, as they leave the garden, their makeshift self-righteous clothing, their, their covering was removed from them, the leaves. Instead, they were given the skins of an animal, prophetically pointing forward to the Lamb of God who would lay His life down for them and robe them in His righteousness. So from the very beginning, God knew full well that humans would seek to establish their own righteousness. And ever since then, it has been the endemic disease of humanity to establish our own righteousness, to contribute something to our salvation. You have heard the cliche before, That there is no such thing as a free lunch. You've heard this before. I don't really think that's uh, a problem in America. We know that. 
For most Americans, the problem is not that we're seeking for a free lunch. I think the problem for most Americans is that we don't want one. I've said this to you before. When you go out with your buddy, your friend, ladies don't call their sisters buddy, right? When you go out with your sisters, whatever. Whenever you're out with with your companions and the check comes, it's this American cultural dance thing we do, right? Like like you're sitting in your seat, but really you're doing a dance. And the dance is who's going to pick the check up? And there's something sort of embarrassing about another person picking up your tab, your debt to that restaurant. You want to contribute something. Even if it's pulling out like a scraggly $5 bill from your billfold, because none of us use cash anymore, and and lay it down to contribute to the tip, knowing full well that the person who's paying for the meal is going to write it with a pen. The problem for us is not necessarily that we want a free lunch. The problem for us is that we want to contribute. We want to have something to give. We we want to to make sure that we have a part to play in the settling of the debt. This is a little window into the soul of humanity. And it wasn't too many years after Jesus proclaimed a free gospel the fulfillment of God's promise to Adam and Eve that the Redeemer would come. And He accomplished all of God's promises. He was a substitute for their sins. He he bore God's wrath in their place. Then He was raised victorious from the grave, conquering sin and death, dealing a death blow to the serpent. And yet, not too many years between 15 and 20 after Jesus' ascension, we find ourselves here in Acts chapter 15 after the gospel begins to take root not only in Israel but beyond a challenge to the freeness of its nature. So Paul and Barnabas, as I already said to you, come back from their first missionary journey all the way to Europe. They come back now to Syria, to the city of Antioch, their home church, and begin teaching again. And some people come down from Jerusalem and somehow, through their influence, begin influencing these Antiochian Christians to believe that if you're really going to be saved, you've got to do some things to contribute to your salvation. Notice again in verse 1, they say, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then at the end of verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. What might we learn from these first five verses? Well, I think this. We must be vigilant, for there will always be internal, our own self-righteousness, and external, the self-righteousness of the world. There will always be internal and external threats to the purity of the gospel. What is an implication of this? Well, self-righteousness is a constant threat to the Christian gospel. And that is inside of you, and it is inside of me. I grew up in a relatively legalistic environment. By this, I mean there were lots of rules. There were rules about 
where you went. We had a rule in our family that we couldn't go to movies. Now, it wasn't because my parents were necessarily concerned that we were going to watch really bad movies, but there was a concern in their minds that if we went to the, to the movie theater, it was always called the movie theater, it wasn't just the movies. If you went to the movie theater, that somebody might see you coming out of the movie theater and think you went to one of the bad ones. Like somehow at 12, year old, you're able, 12 years old, you're able to sneak into like an R-rated film or something like that. Um, there were rules about what we listened to. There were rules about what you ate and what you drank and in some more even conservative circles, which I later became involved in, there were rules about facial hair and how long your own hair was. I went to a college, I kid you not, that once a week, the guys had what was called hair check. You've never heard of this, right? Um, you had to walk down the aisle to your seat in this big auditorium. And if you were, I think I remember this, was never a problem for me because my hairline began receding from the womb. But for my other friends who were normal, um, if your hairline was um, further than two finger lengths close to your eyebrows, then you got demerits for that. And it couldn't touch the collar of your shirt. True story. Um, And you couldn't go to lunch until you went to this special place because they took your ID from you and you had to have your ID to get into lunch. And you had to go to this special place and receive your demerits and they'd give you your ID back so you could go get lunch. So basically, the, the message of that rule was you can't eat if your hair's too long. I kid you not, like, like this is the kind of stuff we grew up with. Now, if you had asked my institution, how is a person justified? How do they find favor with God? They would have said, you must trust in Jesus alone. And that's it. That's what they taught. They were not saying that proper hair length was necessary for for salvation or for justification. But the emphasis over time was was not really on the gospel. The emphasis over time became what you did or did not do. There was always a great purge in the student body population in the second semester right around Super Bowl time because there were strict rules about where you could watch the Super Bowl and what commercials you could watch and all that kind of stuff. The student body uh, population always depleted right around the uh, time of Super Bowl in my institution. And this became the emphasis. Now, if you looked on paper, they believed the pure gospel. But the emphasis became so much upon behavior, the gospel itself became eclipsed. And I know countless people from my background who have abandoned the faith altogether. Now, I won't dive into all of that today. But have abandoned the faith altogether because there developed a great confusion between the gospel itself and the rules that you had to keep. These teachers that came up from Jerusalem may not necessarily have had completely impure motives. Because after all, We should be careful what we watch, right? In in a day and age like this one, has there ever been a more prevalent access to really bad stuff that we can take in with our eyes and ears? I mean, I, I don't think I'm a prude, but that's true, right? We should be careful what we take in. We shouldn't abuse our bodies. We we should seek to be holy and righteous. So perhaps 
Some of the motives of these people coming down from Jerusalem were not entirely impure. Perhaps they wanted to make sure that all these people coming out of a Gentile background really left their idolatrous past there, in the past. But regardless of their motives, Paul and Barnabas were very concerned that the gospel might be eclipsed or overshadowed. And notice what kind of of atmosphere developed among those here in the church in Antioch. Beginning of verse 2, Luke records, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. This was a pretty significant conflict. Paul and Barnabas were not willing for the disciples for which they were responsible to be trapped by these legalistic tendencies. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to the book of Galatians. We will not... I don't have a reference up here specifically. I just have the word Galatians. We will not read the whole book, I promise. But I encourage you that you may want to do some corollary study in the coming days to help yourself understand this just a bit better. Let's trace a couple of things that Paul says here to the churches in Galatia. Galatia was a region, wasn't a city. Paul had just been there on his first missionary journey. He probably wrote the letter to the Galatian churches right around the time of this church council that we're going to talk about in just a moment in Jerusalem. So this would probably be around the late 40s AD. He introduces himself in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. In other words, this letter came from him. And look in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel Contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 15. Paul says about himself and his companions, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Look in verse 20 of chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, they heard preaching about the cross. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 10 of chapter 3, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law, verse 12, is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed it is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And we could go on. This entire letter, along with some of the rest of Paul's writings, like the book of Colossians, and whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, a decent portion of the book of Romans. Much of this, much of these writings given to us by the apostles under the inspiration of the Spirit is interpreting or explaining to us what Christ actually taught and accomplished. And much of the subject matter of these epistles in our New Testament, the letters of the New Testament, is clarifying for us that The pure gospel is that Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrected and offers his righteousness to us on the sole and exclusive basis of faith. So, we must be vigilant for there will always be internal and external threats to the purity of the gospel. Why? Because of self-righteousness. It's a constant threat to the Christian gospel. I can tell you silly, almost unbelievable stories about my legalistic, fundamentalist past, but, but you don't have to, to cut any of us very deeply and guess what is in all of our blood. It's self-righteousness. If we are not constantly drinking deeply from the well of the gospel of Jesus, we will inevitably... We can't even help it. We will inevitably turn to self-righteousness. If you're not drinking deeply from the well of the gospel, you will inevitably, you cannot help it, turn to self-righteousness. You will do two things simultaneously. You will stop paying attention to God's standards because that's crushing. God has perfect standards. God never relaxes His standards. We know this because he killed his own son to rescue us. God's standards are never diminished. So simultaneously, you will do that. You will will stop paying attention to God's holy standards. And what you will inevitably do is you will start comparing yourself to people around you. Now, you may not have quirky oddball rules about your hair, where you go for entertainment or whatever, but you will find something. Often we as parents do this with our parenting philosophies. We notice people around us who don't do it as well as we do it, or at least we have come to the conclusion that they don't because it's a way for us to feel better about ourselves. Uh, This happens all the way from, from birth up through like later adulthood for our children. The kind of education choices you make for your children. 
what they participate in or don't participate in, how they behave in public, who their friends are, what you do for family worship, and on and on and on. And because you are ignoring the crushing standards of God's holiness, which only Jesus can satisfy, you begin comparing yourself to people around you. I'm a better parent than this person. And then what you're really saying, we have this saying in our family, say what you mean. You know, our our kids manipulate us or try to manipulate us because they think they're super smart. Thank God, at this point at least, we're smarter than them. So we say to our kids all the time, say what you mean. So when you're comparing yourself to other people around you because you think you're a better parent than them, what you really mean is I'm better than you. And we do this with all kinds of things. Our success in our careers, our marriages, our finances, our hobbies, on and on and on. Truly anything, sadly, can become an opportunity for us to compare ourselves with people around us and feel better about ourselves. Later on, In Galatians chapter 6, Paul makes it clear that much of the motive behind the legalists who came not only to Antioch, but apparently all the way up to Galatia, was their own self-promotion. Verse 13 of Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. The motives of the human heart are deep and often very, very wicked. So we have to be careful. We have to be watchful. We have to be vigilant. Parents, be really, really careful about this with your kids. We'll talk about that toward the end of our time together today. But, but lest you think I'm saying here today that because the gospel of Jesus Christ is freely received by faith, that therefore we should just do whatever we want, I am I'm not saying that. It's totally appropriate to have family standards. And they may be different from the parents who are sitting next to you this morning. That's okay. That's between you and God, parents. But be really, really careful that you're constantly doing inventory checks on your children's hearts to make sure that they are not confusing performance with acceptance. Behavior with belief. Satisfying God with their behavior and standing before Him as redeemed children of God. Don't assume that because you've said it once that they'll always get it. You must do consistent thermometer checks, so to speak. You know when your children have fever? What do you do over the course of the couple of days of their sickness? You, you take a benchmark test at the beginning. What's their fever? Maybe it's 101. You test it 12 hours later after giving them the regimen of ibuprofen and, and acetaminophen, and maybe it went down a little bit. But if it spikes, you know that the medicine isn't working. Maybe you make a call to the doctor, and you check it over the course of a couple, three days to make sure that the fever is going down, which means that whatever the body is fighting is, is being healed. You have to do this For all of your children's lives, constant thermometer checks. What is it that you're actually believing? Which means that you, you parents, must constantly be drinking deeply from that well of the gospel so that you're pushing back back against your own tendency towards self-righteousness. 
This is true for us as a church. We must be careful that any sort of institutional traditions that have developed here or that may develop here are not confused with the gospel itself. For a church like ours that cares pretty deeply about doctrinal purity, and that's true of our church, what saves us? Being students of the Reformation and being able to explain what Luther said 500 years ago and its relevance for today, is that what saves you? Now listen, if you said that to me after church today, I would clap. I'd love it. I get thrilled by that stuff. But that's not what saves you. We want you here to have godly marriages. We want you to have families that are filled with with doctrinal purity and, and, and zealousness for Christ. But Jesus is the one who saves us, not our doctrinal positions, not even really our convictions. And how easily and how prone we are to to turn toward external peripheral things that become the central things. This has happened in American evangelicalism for a long, long time, and I don't see it stopping anytime soon. The gospel, which should be at the center of our belief system, the bullseye of the target, so to speak, rather than that being talked about and understood and explored and celebrated and embraced, gets flipped out to the exterior. And then too often what happens is those things which should be more external, more peripheral, get shoved to the center. The whole thing gets flipped inside out. And instead of evangelicalism, what we've often done is pay attention to those central things. What political party you belong to, what social issues you adhere to, what doctrinal nuances you hold to over against other people. I was part of a pretty legalistic church for a long time. In that church, over time, there developed a great doctrinal split. And those who were seeking to uphold a pure gospel talked about the gospel a lot. It tended to be somewhat influential in that church. They tended to be teachers and leaders in the church. But the laity more largely did not like the doctrinal position that these teachers and leaders held to. So they created this little mob sort of like the old black and white pictures you see of like old Frankenstein movies where the people from the local village take their pitchforks and their, uh, their torches and go storm Frankenstein's castle to, to kill the monster. That's how they acted. And, and here's how they said you could distinguish the enemy. The enemy that they were after used the word gospel a lot. As though that was a bad thing. These people were so used to being told what they should and shouldn't do that they had learned to love the law. It became the basis of their identity. And when a more pure gospel began to infiltrate the church, they couldn't stomach it, these self-professed Christians. And so they went on a witch hunt. It's interesting that Paul uses the word bewitched here in his letter to the churches in Galatia, they had truly been bewitched. And then they went on a witch hunt. It's pretty ironic. If we're going to go down, let us go down as those upon whose lips the gospel is constantly rehearsed and whose hearts it is embraced. We must be vigilant where there will always be internal and external threats to the purity of the gospel. This is what the Protestant Reformation was all about, right? 
couple of Sundays ago was the 501st anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, during which a number of God's people, really in various locations, though led by a couple of individuals uniquely, came to grips with the fact that we are justified not on the basis of what we have done, sacramentalism, but upon what Christ has done exclusively, and thus birthed a movement of which we are a part. Thank God, where the purity of the gospel was recovered after centuries of being eclipsed. So what did Paul and Barnabas do? They took a strong stand against these teachers who had come to them in Antioch, and then along with them, a delegation goes down to Jerusalem. And I think in the remainder of our section for today, we learned this. We must pass on the pure gospel to those in our spheres of influence. Implication, the glory of God and the eternal salvation of others, otherwise hopeless people is at stake. Let me read that again. The glory of God and the eternal salvation of otherwise hopeless people is at stake. So, Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem from Antioch with some of the other people from their church. The apostles and elders are gathered there waiting for them, and then there is a lot of debate. We see that in verse 7. Peter, who was the original leader of the apostolic band that led to the formation of the church in Jerusalem, stands up first. It's fitting that he do so, not only because of his position of leadership, but also because he was really the first one to get the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, you can make the case, because we've studied the book of Acts so far, that back in chapter 8, that the first Gentile convert may have been the Ethiopian eunuch, but that would have just been an individualized thing. The first time that you see a number of conversions among the Gentiles is when Peter takes the gospel to Cornelius, a Gentile, and he and those in his influence come to faith in Jesus. So because of Peter's influential position in the church, because he was the one who got the gospel to the Gentiles first, he stands up and talks and says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. They had been impure, now they are pure in God's sight. Now, verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter, in just a few short sentences here, and I'm sure that this is a summary of what Peter said. This probably went on for days and days, but Luke summarizes. Peter here, in a few sentences, summarizes the entirety of Jewish history. What is the history of the Jews, if not God giving the law that they couldn't keep? And God did that on purpose. Paul will later say in his letter to the church in Rome, he asked the question, is the law evil? What is his response? No, the law is holy and righteous and good. But we have to understand what it was for. The book of Galatians actually clarifies this and 
Galatians chapters 3 and 4, the law was given to us to expose our sinfulness and to prepare us for Christ. But if you use it unlawfully to lead to justification as a means of salvation, it will always fall short. The law was holy and righteous and good because it shows us just how sinful we are and how desperately we need Christ. So so Peter says, listen, it's always been this way. If you look back at the story of our fathers, what has the law done? Exposed their sinfulness. But it was a yoke that they couldn't bear for the purpose of justification. In other words, nobody can live perfectly. Nobody can keep all the laws. It's like a constant juggling act, except you're juggling like 19 things, and they might be chainsaws or fireballs. You can't do it. It's too much. And God never intended to save people through their performance. Notice he calls it here a yoke in verse 10. You're probably well familiar with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. That his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so he invites those who who want to come to him to, to come to him and find rest. Jesus offers the opposite. Recently at a conference, a theologian named Robert Godfrey said something succinct but very powerful. And the incarnation, the lawgiver, becomes the curse bearer. This is what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 2 when he comments that when Jesus rescued us, he took the record of debts against us like a ledger. And he nailed it to his cross. So the record of debts against us, which is real, it's legitimate. How many times have we lied? How many times do we still lie, though we painted as something different? Lusted been prideful, been greedy, been selfish, been heartless. How many times? But that record of debts against against us, which is real, is blood-soaked with the blood of the Son of God who laid His life down for us. Jesus, who gave the law, fulfills the law on our behalf, bearing our curse. Not only does Peter speak up, but Paul and Barnabas do as well. They talk about their missionary journey, how God is rescuing Gentiles from their sin. And then James stands up. James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is not the brother of John. This is the brother of our Lord Jesus, who was converted after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. What must that have been like? This is a total parenthesis. What must that have been like for a guy like James, who had grown up with Jesus and never seen him do anything wrong. You know what it's like when you're agitating between your kids? Like they come downstairs after you've heard some horrible commotion upstairs. It's like World War IV. And they come down and you're, you're left to try to figure out who did what was wrong. And, and in the end, both of them did or four of them did. What must it have been like for James? Like, like any conflict he ever had with Jesus, he was always the one who was wrong. That must have been super frustrating. But after eventually coming to faith in Jesus, not only seeing what he was like, he was different than James. He was actually the son of God, quite literally, who had never never violated any of God's laws, 
and had followed all the positive ones. Not only did Jesus never do anything negative, he did all the right things. He always forgave James. He always loved James' parents. He always loved their neighbors. He always did the right thing. Jesus was a proper snitch, I'm sure. But then Jesus began to teach publicly and to do miracles. And then he died. And then he rose again. And who better than James to interpret the life of Jesus? So he stands up, leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he says, brothers, listen to me. He had authority. Simeon, this is Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name and with the words of the prophets agreed just as it is written. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. In other words, when God, Jesus comes as the expected Messiah and begins to restore Israel, what's going to happen to the rest of the world? They're going to get drawn into the same tent. So what's James' conclusion? Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So in other words, you don't have to become a proselyte, an adherent, a convert to Judaism to be a Christian. But there are some things they should do. They should probably avoid things polluted by idols. They should, of course, abstain from sexual immorality, verse 20. And they should abstain from certain foods, those things which were strangled and from blood. And I won't dive into that too much today because it gets down into a lot of minutia of the Mosaic law. But I think he gives the stipulation for this, the reason for it, the cause for it in verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. All we have to do is look back at Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. When they went into a new city, where did they typically go first? They went to the synagogue. Because Christianity was the fulfillment, the, the carrying out, the completion of Judaism. It would have been a more ready audience. Then eventually the gospel would have gotten to the Gentiles in those cities as well. And then out of that would form churches. Churches comprised mostly of Gentiles, but some Jewish converts. And then as we have studied recently in the book of Ephesians, you had in one church people from very different ethnic backgrounds and very different religious backgrounds, except they didn't do this naturally. They did this naturally. Paul talks about this in sections like 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. Much of the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, there was conflict because of former religious and ethnic traditions. James does call Gentile converts to be, to be watchful about certain things, and seemingly largely because they were going to live in proximity to scrupulous Jews, those who had a lot of rules and laws they kept for themselves, and he didn't want there to be conflict. So, in other words, don't go worship anymore in the temples where you used to worship. Stay away from idols. Much of the food of the day that you could buy in the marketplace had been sacrificed to idols and then sold. Of course, you should stay away from sexual immorality. That kind of goes without saying, but sexual immorality back then was very tied to one's religious cult. It was actually, it was actually praised and celebrated as part of your worship. You have to leave that behind, James is saying. And because the Jews had very scrupulous rules about what they ate and didn't eat, 
James is encouraging them to be careful that they don't offend their brother who might have a weaker conscience. Interestingly, in Paul's writings, those who have the stronger consciences are those who allow more. But in these cities where Jews and Gentiles were worshiping together, those who were more scrupulous, those who had more rules, according to Paul, had a weaker conscience than those who were stronger, should love them and be willing to bend toward them, especially when they had meals together. But it doesn't stop there. Under James' leadership, they, they write a letter. They send it back to Antioch and likely to the other churches of the region that had been evangelized, that they would hear these things as well. So early on in the church, they take a strong stand. What is the gospel? Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. Notice again what Peter said in verse 11. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, resurrected, if he is embraced exclusively on the basis of faith, we will be saved. Jerusalem church takes a strong stand in this, and they disseminate their rulings to the churches around them so there's no confusion. I won't take time to develop this today, but I want to put up a couple of Actually, three passages in front of you that you could study just a bit. Because the question should be arising in our heads, and I've already touched on this a bit. So how should we live? Paul, James, Peter, were they opening up the door for us to just do whatever we want after we've trusted Jesus? This same James wrote an epistle, actually quite a bit before this council in Jerusalem, where he encourages people to actually live really righteously. James chapter 2, he says that we evidence our faith in his brother Jesus by what we do, by our works. In fact, he goes so far as to say that we are justified by our works. He doesn't mean that we are accepted by God because of our works, but that whenever we work as those who are made new in Christ, we are displaying the fruit of real faith in Jesus. Romans 13, Paul outlines some of the behaviors for Christians. Primarily this idea that we should love. And he says in Romans 13 that love is the fulfillment of the law. And love is always active. Love is denying ourselves and giving ourselves for another. Sacrificing for another. In Galatians chapter 6, this passage that I encouraged you toward just a bit ago, Paul says that we should fulfill a royal law, the law of Christ, by loving one another, bearing each other's burdens. So the question should arise in your heads, are there expectations upon us and those redeemed by Christ? And the answer is, yes. But not for the purpose of justification, of being accepted by God, of being acquitted for our sins, of being saved. But the good works that we do which Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, are actually prepared by God beforehand that we should walk in them or what God requires of us, not for justification or salvation, but to glorify Him, which means that the purpose of our salvation is always the glory of God. What do I mean by that? When we trust Jesus exclusively for our salvation, for our justification, God gets glory because He's the one who accomplishes it. And then once we are justified and transformed and display God's character to the world around us as mirrors, which used to be smudgy, that are getting cleaned up and accurately now reflecting the glory of God, again, God gets glory. 
So what's the purpose of salvation? The glory of God being put on display. So James is careful here in Acts chapter 15 to say that it does matter what you do. That doesn't save you, but it displays, if you will, that you are saved. So, to rehearse, we must be vigilant for there will always be internal and external threats to the purity of the gospel. And we must pass on the pure gospel to those in our spheres of influence. I've already talked about this with your kids. I think you have to be careful about this with your neighbors. Your neighbors will always be confused about why you are the way you are. Why do you take your precious time on Sundays when you could sleep in or be doing other things and attend corporate worship? Why do you give a pretty large chunk of your money to a church? Why aren't your kids allowed to do some of the same things that our kids do? Why don't your kids act quite like the way our kids act? Why don't you talk badly about your spouse like we talk badly about our spouses? Why do you vote the way you vote? Why do you do the things you do? If we're not careful, we might leave with them the impression that we're just better people, more moral, more disciplined more philanthropic. My friends, that's not our hope, right? Philanthropy is not what saves us. Selflessness is not what saves us. Moral kids, that's not what saves us. Now, certainly, there should be things about us. Peter talks about this later in his epistles. There should be things about us that cause our neighbors to ask us, why are you like that? But Peter doesn't just suggest that we shrug and say, well, that's just the way I am. He encourages us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So we've got to be careful that we don't just model gospel transformation, but we actually proclaim the gospel itself. The church in Jerusalem was, was concerned that the purity of the gospel be upheld and then disseminated. We must be careful with this as well. And internally, inside of our church, but outside as well. Ultimately, my friends, this community will not be rescued by another group of moral people. This community can only be rescued by Jesus Christ if they will receive Him by faith. And so this is a good time for us to take stock. What is it that we actually hold to? What is the hope that lies within us? Is it Jesus plus our behavior? Or is it Jesus and Jesus alone? What message are we sending to our children, to our neighbors? Is it Jesus is important and Jesus' people are pretty nice people, so so do all that and you'll be okay? Or is it that Jesus is our only hope, and He is their only hope. So this gives us an opportunity to take stock of what it is we actually embrace. It gives us a chance to take stock of what it is we're passing on and what we are proclaiming. May the Lord Jesus here in this church and through this church receive glory 
because we embrace the purity of his gospel and we have the faith and courage to pass it on to those who so desperately need it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you will glorify yourself in this church by helping us to understand and embrace the purity of the good news. May we not trend over towards self-righteousness. Instead, may we embrace your sacrifice and your resurrection as our only hope. We pray that you will indeed transform us, that people would see that we are different, and then we would have opportunity to proclaim why. Because you, you alone have rescued us and made us different. May we pass this on to our kids. May they embrace a pure gospel. May we pass this on to our community and around the world that people will be rescued from their sin exclusively on the basis of your righteousness, which may be received by faith and faith alone. Help us, we pray, for your glory and for the joy of many. Amen. Let's stand and sing.